The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I want to begin this morning with a really simple question, and the question is this, who's in charge here? Can you say that out loud with me? Who's in charge? Can you turn to someone next to you and point your finger and say, who's in charge here anyway? Just go ahead and do it. If you're talking to your spouse, this could be complicated, but who's in charge? Now that question, right, who's in charge here, is a question that we ask and people ask all the time, whether, whether or not they're using those exact words. It's a question that people are asking all of the time, because that question at the root is a question about authority. When you ask who's in charge here, you're asking the question, who's the one making the rules? Who's determining what's right and wrong? Who's saying where we should go and when we should go and where we should stop and when we should move forward? Who's in charge here? It's a question that children ask all of the time. A few years back, my youngest son, Joshua, had just come home from Taiwan. We, both of my boys are adopted from Taiwan. My youngest son was 13 months when he came home. And of course, as you can imagine, uh, he's 13 months old. He's in our house and everything's new to him. Uh, the sounds are new to him. The smells are new to him. The people were new to him. The place was new to him. And so he was in this exploration stage, kind of checking everything out. I remember one particular day, I was laying on the couch, and he's over there sort of exploring the house. And I see him look at the wall. And as he's looking the wall, I notice he looks down from the wall, and he, his eye gets caught on the electrical outlet. And so there he is, staring at the electrical outlet. And then all of a sudden, I see sort of his wheels turning in his mind, and he's looking at the electrical outlet. All of a sudden, he takes his finger, and he goes like this, and he starts moving towards the electrical outlet, obviously trying to figure out, does this finger fit into there? Now, as I'm watching this whole thing happen, I do what any self-respecting father would do. I let him stick his finger in the electrical out. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I'm not a monster. As he's moving towards the wall, right, Jordan, I wonder if this fits in there. I say to him really strongly, I say, Josh, no, don't touch. And he stops. And he looks up at me. Now, I know he doesn't fully, like, fully understand exactly what I'm saying, but he gets the essence of what I'm saying. So I say, Josh, no, t-. he looks at me, and he looks at the, at the wall, and in this moment, he has, like, two choices, right? One choice in his mind is, do I listen to this guy over here on the couch who's laying down and telling me to say, or do I keep going? What choice do you think he made? He continued to go towards the wall. Now, what was he doing in that moment by that choice? He was basically, through his actions, asking this question, who's in charge here? Is it that guy over there trying to tell me to stop, or is it me? If I continue on towards the wall, will there be any consequences? Who's in charge here? Have you ever called customer service because you had something wrong, uh, some bill that needed to be refunded, some issue with with the company, and you call customer service, and as you're talking to them, the person on the other line, everything that you ask them to do, they say, no, 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 sorry, that's against our company policy, we are unable to do that. Does that ever happen to anybody? And when that happens, you also have a couple of choices. One is you can just say, oh, well, she said no, I guess there's nothing we can do about it, or you can ask him a follow-up question. And the follow-up question goes like this. May I speak with your who? Your supervisor. Apparently some of you have done this before. Now when you ask them, may I speak with your supervisor, what are you saying? You're asking them essentially what? Who's in charge here? Because you know the first person to pick up that phone ain't the person in charge of that company. You know that somebody has authority. Somebody has the ability to call the shots. Somebody has the ability to say, this is right, this is wrong, you can do this, you can't do this. Who is in charge here? Now, I start this morning with this question, who's in charge here, as we talk about a series of engaging with the Bible for this reason. 
Tomorrow morning, many of you are going to open up your Bible to John chapter 6. That's the next chapter in the Bible reading plan for West Pines Community Church. And, and before you start reading, okay, before you begin one word on your YouVersion Bible app or one word on your paper Bible, I want you to ask this question. With the Bible open in front of you, I want you to ask the question, who's in charge here? Is it me? Or are the words of the page that I'm about to read of the Word of God in charge over me? Your answer to that question has a fundamental ability to shape the way you grow or don't grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. How you and I determine the answer to the question, who's in charge of me or the text of scripture, will shape our ability to grow as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ here in South Florida. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to answer that question, who's in charge here, first from the Apostle Paul, see his answer. And then second, I want to answer that question from the perspective of the culture around us. And then I want to close by giving a couple ways forward. Let's start with the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Paul the Apostle is writing to his protege, Timothy, who is a pastor. And he writes these words. He says this, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God God breathed. Now, the, there's a Greek word underneath God breathed. Some translations translate this, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, the original Greek word there is a compound word, and it's the word theonoustos. Can you say that out loud with me? Theonoustos. Two Greek words put together, theo meaning God, noustos, or pneuma, which is breath or spirit. And we don't find this Greek word, theonoustos, anywhere else outside of this passage of Scripture before Paul penned it. So we don't find this in other extra-biblical Greek literature. We don't find this in other biblical literature until Paul wrote the words, theonoustos, which leads some theologians to believe that Paul actually created this word. And he's writing to Timothy, and he's like, okay, let me, let me describe Scripture. It's different than anything else. And he says, okay, all Scripture is, let's see, um, what can I say? It's God breathe. Theonousis puts those words together to describe the uniqueness of the word of God. Now the big idea that he's trying to articulate when he says all scripture is God breathed is he's talking about the source and origin of authority saying that because it's God breathed the scriptures when you read it did not originate in the mind of a man. It didn't originate in the heart of a person. What Paul is trying to say is that when you read the text of scripture it originated in the heart's and in the mind of who? Of God himself. All scripture is theonoustos, God breathed. Now if that's true, if the Bible actually originated in the heart of mind, not just of a man, but of God, then there are implications for how we engage with the Bible. Now Paul lists some of the implications. Notice what he says as we continue. In the passage, he says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for, and I'd love for you to read the underlined words out loud with me, all right? So let's read it together. It's useful for what? For teaching rebuking, correcting, and what? Training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is theonoustos, God breathed, originated in the heart and mind of God, and because of that reality, it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So let me just kind of walk through what he means by those uh, implications. First, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching. What does he mean by that? He means that every time you open the Bible, 
Tomorrow morning, when you wake up early and you sit with John chapter 6, or you take your lunchtime, you sit with the text, or before you go to bed, you open up your YouVersion Bible app and you begin to read before you do your soap. He's saying every single time you open up the Word of God, there is something to be learned. It's useful for teaching. There's wisdom in the Word of God for your parenting. There's wisdom in the Word of God for your finances. There's wisdom in the Word of God for your purpose in life. There's wisdom in the Word of God for your sexuality. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. We can learn. The second thing he says this is all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and, does anyone remember what he said next? Rebuking. Has anyone ever been rebuked before? If you've got a mama, you've been rebuked before, right? If your mom has ever used all three of your names, Jonathan, Dieter, Els, we come here right now. Dieter is my middle name. You've been rebuked before. Here's what it means to be rebuked. Here's what rebuking is. Rebuking is you're going the wrong direction. You're headed in the wrong direction. And someone calls you out on it and calls you back into the right path. That's rebuking. What Paul's saying is that the Bible, the Word of God, because it's God-breathed, because it's theonoustos, it's profitable, it's helpful for us to rebuke us, that there are going to be times when you sit down and you open up the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God through the pages of Scripture are going to say, you're going in the wrong direction. It's time to turn around. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. I remember the first time I read this, I thought correcting and rebuking, don't they essentially mean the same thing? There's a little bit of a different nuance for correcting. Correcting, the idea here is not necessarily that you're going in the wrong direction, but even if you're going in the right direction, correcting is the idea of improvement. If you've ever sat down with a teacher for music, do we have any people who grew up playing piano? Any piano players here? Nobody. Oh, a few of you. Okay, we're, we're hiring you for the worship team now. We're going to get you on stuff. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you've ever had a piano teacher, you sit down and you start playing your piece. And your piano teacher looks at you and says, you're doing a good job, but I want you to correct your posture. I want you to lift up your hands. I want you to play this more in tempo. It's correct. It's, it's causing you to improve. What Paul is saying is that the Word of God, the Bible, is useful for causing us to prove. So he says it's useful, it's helpful uh, for us, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. And the last one was this. Does anyone remember what it was? What? Training in what? Righteousness. Now, what does he mean by that? In the New Testament, uh, the idea of righteousness is essentially that righteousness is not something that you can create in your own ability by your good choices. But that righteousness is something that's given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. So part of the gospel of Jesus is that you and I were created into the world. We were made by God and we were born into the world with what's called a sin nature. Which means that our propensity, your propensity, is not towards perfect obedience, but it's actually towards sinfulness. And every person in this room, including the guy speaking right now, has sinned against God, the Bible says. And that because of our sin, it merits us punishment and eternal separation from God. That's the bad news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. That God loved you so much. I mean, he loved you so much. That he said, I don't want it to stay that way. Like, we're not going to stay that way. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to be your substitute. And that's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh, was born among us as the substitute for humanity. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived in our place. And then on the cross, here's what God did. He took your sins off of you. Your lying, your cheating, your stealing, my anger, my bitterness, my jealousy. He took our sins off of us and he placed them on his son Jesus. And he punished Jesus instead of punishing you or punishing me. Jesus died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again. And now here's the promise of the scriptures. If you will cross the line of faith, Place your trust in Jesus. Believe he died and rose again for you. And you'll follow him. Here's what happens. God says you will be adopted into his family and you will be declared righteous. 
You, you will be, in other words, what God does is he takes the righteousness of Jesus and, and the theological term, he imputes the righteousness of Jesus onto you. If you're a Mac user, he takes Jesus' righteousness, command C, copy, and then he goes over to you and command V, he pastes it onto you. That's what, G, that's what God does. The righteousness of Jesus imputed to you so that when God sees you, he sees his righteousness, the righteousness of his son Jesus. It's called justification. And some people say it like this, and I love it. When you become a Christian and God imputes the righteousness on you and justifies you, it is just as if you'd never sinned. Or just as if you'd always obeyed. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could look back in your life and say, I always obeyed. I never sinned. And the truth of the gospel is that when you place your trust in Jesus, God places the righteousness on you. And when he looks at you, it is like you had always obeyed. Isn't that beautiful? That's righteousness in the New Testament. So what in the world does it mean here, of course, that Paul is saying, well, the, the scripture is useful for training us in righteousness. He's not saying that it makes us righteous. He's saying this, that the scripture is useful to teach you and I how to live out who we already are. See, you've been declared righteous through Jesus Christ, and what the scripture does is as you engage it, and as you read it, and as you study it, and as you grow in it, it teaches you how to become what God has already declared you to be. It's like when you're a first-time mom. Does anyone remember being a first-time mom? And you bring that baby home from the hospital, and the baby is in your arms now, in your home, and you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe they let me go with this baby. I don't even know what to do. And you are positionally a mom already, but it takes some time for you to learn, to learn how to become who you already are, right? Or when you get married, and you're on your honeymoon, and you think, man, I love married life. This is great. You're in Cancun, sipping tropical fruit drinks. You don't have to work. It's fantastic. Then you get back home, and he doesn't flush the toilet after he goes or leaves the toilet seat up or she leaves toothpaste on the counter or the clothes are on the floor or you get in your first argument, whatever it is, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I get it. I'm married, but I've got to learn how to be married. Right? That, that's what happens here. The Scripture says, and Paul's saying, listen, you have been declared righteous, but what the scripture does is it teaches you how to live out who you already are. Now, the big idea of everything that Paul is getting at here is he's saying this. The Bible is theonoustos. It's God-breathed. And because the or it originates in God, his heart and mind, the Bible is useful to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. All of what he's saying here is this, is that the ultimate authority in our lives is not us, but it's the word of God. In other words, if you were to go to Paul and say, all right, Paul, so, so who is it? Here's the Bible. Here's me, okay, who's in charge here? Me or the Bible? What's Paul's answer? I'll tell you, Paul's answer is not you. His answer is, it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. Why is the Bible, the Word of God in charge here? Because these are the words of God. This is Theonoustos. The Bible is the Word of God. And because of that, the Bible has authority over us. Who's in charge here? It's not me. It's not you. It's the Word of God. Which means that if the Bible is in charge here, we cannot ignore what the Bible has to say for us. Thomas Jefferson fam famously, as he was reading the scriptures, the New Testament, the Gospels, he didn't like everything that was in there. And so he took a penknife and he would take sections of the Bible that he liked and he would ignore the sections he didn't like. He would cut out the sections he liked and he pasted them in his own Bible. Like he literally cut out stuff and said, you know, I really don't like what it says about that. I don't really like Jesus says about that. And he put him in his own Bible and he thought this is the best Bible around. It's the Bible that I've created from my own mind and my own will and my own, my own heart. In other words, what he said is the Bible's not the authority. I'm the authority. I get to choose what I want to do and what I don't want to do. You know how many Christians, so often this happens to us. 
We read the pages of scripture. We hear the pastor preach a passage, and there's something about forgiveness. And we hear where they're like, you know, I like all this other stuff over here about God loving me, but forgiving, not going to do it. I'm going to ignore it. All right, I like all this stuff over here about God's presence and his blessing in my life, but this stuff about generosity, I'm just going to ignore it. I like this stuff over here about God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to pay for my sins, but this stuff out about sexual purity, I'm going to ignore it. And maybe we've never had the boldness or the audacity to literally take a scissors and cut out our own Bible. But so often we ignore the parts we don't want to listen to and we listen to the parts we want to listen to. And Paul is saying, listen up, who's in charge here? It's not you. It's not me. It's the word of God. And because it's the word of God, you and I, we can't ignore it. Uh, a few years back. My wife, Melissa, and I went to go watch a movie at Regal Cinemas over on Pines and Dykes. Anyone been to Regal Cinemas and a show of hands? A few of you, yeah. They have the best reclining seats. Can I get an amen on that if you've been there? Like, they're awesome. The best are out. Every time I go to see a movie, I fall asleep for like 20 minutes. They're so comfortable. Mission Impossible doesn't matter. I'm out for 20 minutes. They're that comfortable. One day, this is a few years back, uh, we're going to see a matinee. I dropped my wife off to go get the tickets, and, I, and we're a little bit late. So I rush in, and I pull into a parking spot. And as I pull into the parking spot, I notice that I didn't do the greatest job parking, which is not atypical for me. I'm not the best parker. I've not been given the spiritual gift of spatial awareness, as some of you have been. And so I get out and realize this is a little crooked, but like, whatever, you know, we got to go. So I hop out and I'm starting moving towards, you know, the movie theater. And all of a sudden I hear a woman's voice from over here. And she says, excuse me, you parked on the line. And I turn around. I'm like, who is it? I don't know. This is just a random stranger lady say you parked on the line. At this moment, a lot of thoughts are going through my head, right? One of which is like, what side of the bed do you have to wake up on to be pointing out? And the movie theater, someone parked on the line. I hear her, I look at her, and I think, well, I got to go. So I make a little joke of it. Yeah, I'm not the best, Parker. <laughs> and then I continue, and I continue walking. Well, as I continue walking, she continues talking. Excuse me, sir, you parked on the line. You need to move your car. You parked on the line. You need to get back here. You parked on the line. Now, in that moment, I have, just like my son did at the beginning of the message, I have two choices, right? One choice is to say, you know what, you're right, ma'am, absolutely, I did park in love. Let me, let me go back and fix it, get in my car, pull it back out. It would probably take me four or five times to get it right. But anyway, get it right, pull it, and there you go. I could have done that. My other option was to completely ignore her and keep moving towards the movie theater. Which option do you think I chose to do? <laughs> okay, I ignored her. I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm not saying it's right. You're like, but you're a pastor, right? So probably a Jesus bumper sticker on my car at the time, you know. Come to Crossway Church, that old deal, right? So I, I ignore her, and like I keep walking, and I, I won't lie, there was a, a little bit of, of fear in my heart as I was sitting watching the movie thinking, I hope she doesn't key my car. You park on the line, you know. A little bit there was going on in my, in my mind as I was thinking about it. Anyway, I, I was reflecting on why I didn't stop and just fix my car. And there's a lot of reasons that came to my mind. One is that I was in a hurry, true. Okay, second, so I'm a little bit stubborn sometimes, also true. But I thought, that's not really why I didn't stop and fix my car. Honestly, the reason why I didn't stop and fix my car, if I really am honest about what happened there, was because she did not have authority over me. I knew it. So I knew she can't do nothing, right? I'm just walking. Now, if, if I would rewind the story, and I get out of my car, and I'm parked bad, and a police officer is standing there and says, excuse me, sir, you parked on the line, move your car, guess what I'm doing? I'm moving my car. 
It doesn't matter if I'm running late. It doesn't matter if I'm being stubborn because that officer has authority over me. I'm submitting myself to that authority. Here's the deal. So many of us, when it comes to the Bible, treat the Bible like the woman at Regal Cinema. You parked on the line and we're like, whatever, and we keep walking. And what Paul is saying is that we've got to understand who's in charge here. It's not you and it's not me. It's the word of God because these are the words of God. Now, that's Paul's answer to who's in charge here, but that is not our culture's answer. If you were to ask the average South Floridian, you bring a Bible, try this at work tomorrow, you have some great conversations, right? Bring a little Bible to your average person that works with you and say, you know, who's in charge? You or the Bible? How many of you know 99% of the people not followers of Jesus are going to look at you and say, like, of course I'm in charge. You expect me to submit my life to this ancient document? thousands of years old. No, no, no. I'm the one who's in charge of my life. See, the cultural idea that we, and the cultural thinking that we sort of live and breathe and are in is a cultural idea of self-sovereignty. Can everyone say that out loud with me? Self-sovereignty. Now, I want to describe real quick what self-sovereignty is by, by just showing you from Scripture this, the idea of the sovereignty of God. I want to talk about self-sovereignty real quick by showing you the sovereignty of God in the Scriptures because so many of us have unwittingly bought into the idea of self-sovereignty and it sabotages us from growing in an understanding of the Word of God because we've bought into this idea. So real quick, sovereignty of God, and then we'll talk about self-sovereignty. The idea of the sovereignty of God is simply this. God has the absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. God is the highest authority. There is no one above him. And because of that, he has the absolute right to do all things according to his good pleasure. Here's what the book of Psalms says in Psalm 115, 1 through 3. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. And then he goes on to say this. Why do the nations say where, where is their God? I love that. Why are people looking around? Where's your God at? I don't know if I trust it. Things are going bad in the world. Where's your God? He says, why do the nations say where is their God? I love his answer. Our God is in heaven and he does what? Can we say that? Whatever pleases him. I love that. The psalmist is like, you want to know about my God? You want to know where he is? He's in heaven. And he does whatever pleases him. He is sovereign. He is the highest authority. Nobody can tell God what needs to happen. Nobody can teach God. They don't have authority to do that. Nobody can train God in righteousness. He is ultimately righteous. Nobody can tell God, you're parked on the line. You need to move your car. God is the highest authority, and he is in heaven, and he does what? Whatever pleases him. He is sovereign. That's the biblical idea of the sovereignty of God. Let me tell you the, the culture's idea of sovereignty. The culture looks at you and says, sovereignty of God? And his word has authority over you? No, 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 you got it all wrong. It's not God who's sovereign. Here's what the culture says to you. It's you who are sovereign. It's you who is the highest authority. It's you who doesn't have to answer to anybody. It's you who can make all the decisions that you want for your life. You want to spend all of your money on yourself and not give to the poor and not give to the mission of God through his local church? You can do that because you are sovereign over your finances. You want to express yourself sexually however you feel? You can do that because you are sovereign over your sexuality. You want to harbor bitterness and hatred towards people who believe the opposing ideas and the opposing political parties of yours and you want to tell everybody about it on social media? You can do that because you are sovereign over your keyboard and you are sovereign over your emotions. There is no higher authority in your life than you. 
That's what the culture says. But here's the thing. If Paul is right and the highest authority is God and his word over our lives, then those two things, self-sovereignty and the sovereignty of God, are incompatible. But so many of us have bought into the thinking and so many in our culture of the sovereignty of self. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson in his fantastic book, it's called Eat This Book, it's about scripture engagement. He talks about how we've taken the idea of self-sovereignty and what we've essentially done is we've created a replacement trinity. So so the the biblical idea of the Godhead is that there's a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In one essence of God, there's a trinity of persons. Eugene Peterson says, we've replaced that. It's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit who is sovereign. It's me, I'm sovereign. And he says, we've replaced it with a new trinity. And the new trinity is this, my needs, my wants, my feelings. The highest authority in our lives and our culture, my needs, my wants, my feelings, because I'm sovereign. I want to read for you just a couple paragraphs from his book. And I know I'm probably breaking some sort of preacher law by reading a few paragraphs. It's a long quote, but hang with me because this is really good. Notice what he says about the sovereignty of self and the replacement trinity of my needs, my wants, my feelings. He says this, my needs are non-negotiable in this way of thinking. My so-called rights, defined individually, are fundamental to my identity. My need for fulfillment, for expression, for affirmation, for sexual satisfaction, for respect, my need to get my own way. All these provide a foundation to the centrality of me and fortify myself against diminution. My wants... This is the replacement trinity. My needs and my wants are evidence of my expanding sense of kingdom. I train myself to think big because I am big, important, and significant. I'm larger than life and so require more and more goods and services, more things and more power. Consumption and acquisition are the new fruits of the spirit. Here's the last replacement trinity. My feelings are the truth of who I am. You want one sentence that sums up our cultural moment right now? Right there. My feelings are the truth of who I am. Anything or person who can provide me with ecstasy, with excitement, with joy, with stimulus, with spiritual connection validates my sovereignty. This, of course, involves employing quite a large cast of therapists, travel agents, gadgets and machines, recreations and entertainments to cast out the devils of boredom or loss or discontent, all the feelings that undermine or challenge my self-sovereignty. Here's the idea he's saying. He's saying, listen... The Bible says there is someone who's in charge. There is someone who has authority, and it is his word who has authority over my life. The culture says it is not God, and it is not his word. It is you, your feelings, your wants, and your desires. Oh, your needs, your wants, your... That's what is sovereign, and those two things are incompatible. But unfortunately, so many of us try to live our lives acting as if we are sovereign and God is not. That we are the highest authority and God is not. Imagine you're having a conversation with your wife, and you're talking over a fancy dinner at Taco Bell. You know, so there you are, like a Mexi melt and a bean burrito, and you're just saying, you know, I'm just tired of all these people telling me what to do. Government telling me I have to pay taxes. The city of Pembroke Pines telling me I can't build this thing on my property. The HOA telling me I can't paint my house purple. I'm tired of all these people having authority over me. And imagine your wife's like, oh, what do you want to do? And you say, she's like, do you want to move? And you're like, no, no, we're not going to move. I'm going to declare my independence. I don't have to be under their authority. And imagine you write your own family declaration of independence. I hereby declare that John Ellswick and his family is declared independent, emancipated from the authority of the government, from the authority of the city, from the authority of the HOA. I am emancipated from all their... I declare my independence. And, and imagine you do that. 
and then you go around your life not paying attention to anything that the government or the city or your HOA tells you what to do. Let me ask you this question. How long do you think you're going to go before you get thrown into jail for tax evasion? At some point, you would come up against the reality that it is a false sense of sovereignty if you live your life pretending like there's no authority over you. And yet that's how many, how many people live their lives when it comes to God. We act as if there is no authority over us. We act as if we are the authority and not God. So many people act as if I don't have to listen to him and his word. I'm the one in charge, not him and his word. And we do so with a false sense of sovereignty. And at some point, we will come to terms with the fact that there is a God who does exist, who has authority, and his word has authority over our lives, and we will have to give an account of our lives before him. Now, what's the way forward with there? I think the reality of this idea of self-sovereignty that pushes us away from the idea that God is in charge, at the root of it is pride. At the root is pride, isn't it? Like the root is like, man, I'm the one in charge. I don't have to listen to his word. I can pick and choose what I want. I don't have to submit to this. At the root, root of it, it's pride. And here's what James says about pride. He says this. It's really powerful. It's important for us to hear. He says, but he, God, gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows what? What's that word there? Favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. I don't know about you, but if I have to decide which side of that equation I'm going to live my life on, either living my life being opposed by God or living my life being experienced in the favor of God. How many, how many of you know, like, I'm choosing favor. Like, that's what I'd rather be. That's the space I'd rather be in. And James says, great, you can do that. Here's how you do it. It's humility. When it comes to the word of God, what does that mean? If, if God is the ultimate authority and his word is the ultimate authority because it comes from him, then our response, our approach to the scripture must be humility like we've got to come to the word of God in humility we can't be like Thomas Jefferson cutting out the stuff we don't want and keeping the stuff we do want so, so two really simple thoughts on humility here's the first one is that we have to in humility acknowledge our submission to God and ultimately not just God but by extension his word we have to acknowledge our submission to God and to his word which by the way is not always the easiest thing to do is it it's not always, I mean, sometimes it's easy when things are going good, but sometimes it's not very easy. I remember a few months ago, I was, I was prayer walking. Has anyone ever tried prayer walking? For me, it's helpful because I don't know if you've ever had one of those things where you try to pray and you begin to pray and you fall asleep like 30 seconds into the prayer. Has that ever happened to somebody? Like you're laying in your bed like, oh, I'm going to pray right now. Father God, I just love you so much. And then you're just out. If that ever happens to any of you, if you are weak in the flesh like me, Prayer walking is really helpful because you're like you're moving while you're walking and praying. I just put like an earbud in while I prayer walk so people don't think I'm talking to myself, right? They'll think I'm on a phone call, which I kind of am. I'm talking to Jesus, right? So my phone call to Jesus. So I was prayer walking, and sometimes as I pray, I pray through Scripture. And I was praying through the Lord's Prayer. So as I'm walking, I start, look, uh, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And I just started, Lord, thank you that you are a father who has adopted me into your family. Thank you that you're holy. There's nobody like you. So I start like that. And then the next line says this, your kingdom come. Does anyone know what it says next? Your what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I just pray this out loud. All right, Lord, your kingdom come. Walk in. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As soon as I prayed, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, like, do you realize what you're saying? 
Because when you say those words, John, you are saying you are submitting to my will, my way, my kingdom. And I, I like felt like God say that. And the reason why that was so significant, because I was in a season in that moment where I did not want to submit to God's will, God's way, God's plan, because I was working on something that was my plan, and I thought this was going to come together really well, and I put a lot of time and energy into it, and I thought, this is really going to work, and it blew up in my face. And so here I am walking and saying, God, I don't know about your plan right now. I don't know about your way right now. I don't know about your will right now because my plan seemed a whole lot better than what I'm walking through right now. And so there I was walking and wrestling with God in prayer. Can I acknowledge that I want to submit to his will, his way, his word? I don't know if you've ever had one of those wrestling matches, but it was tough. And so there I'm praying like, okay, your kingdom come, right? Okay, your will be done. Your plan, not mine. Your kingdom, not John Ellswick's kingdom. Your will, not John Ellswick's will. Your way, not John Ellswick's way. It is a tough thing to do at times. And we need to begin in humility by acknowledging his sovereignty and his authority over us, him and his word. A great, simple practice is this. Tomorrow morning when you get up and you open up John 6, before you read, I mentioned this at the beginning, but I want you to start like this. Before you read, I want you to go like this. I want you to ask this question, who's in charge here? And then I want you to look up to the Lord and I want you to say, you are. Who's in charge here? You are. God, I want your will. God, I want your way. God, whatever you speak to me, I will do. God, I want to follow you. Whatever you have for me, I want it. However you lead me, I'm going to take it. Who's in charge here? It's not me. It's you and your word. And I will submit to the authority of your word, even when it's hard. I remember several years ago, I was praying and reading the Bible, and I came across this passage in the book of Corinthians. And in this particular passage, he was talking about, Paul was talking about not suing another believer. He's like, don't sue them. And he said, there was this interesting line. He says, why not just be defrauded? Why not just be defrauded and move on with it? And at that time, there was somebody I was harboring like some bitterness in my heart towards. And I read the line, why not just be defrauded? And as I read that line, I felt like God was saying to me, okay, so you need to call this person and you need to ask forgiveness and you need to make reconciliation of this relationship. And when I heard God speak that through his word, I was like, nope, let's go home, <laughs> right? I close it up. I start driving in my office. As I'm driving, I feel like God's saying, like, you heard what the word says. You need to submit to it. Like, I, I want you to call and make reconciliation. No, nope. I pull up to my office. I'm about to get out, and I'm thinking, if I just ignore this, this will go away in 30 minutes. But God was, like, so on me. Like, you've got to submit to it. And so finally, I have to end up picking up the phone. I'm like, okay, uncle, right? Like, uncle, I'm going to do it. I pick up the phone, and I call, like, and I'm sorry. Let's, let's reconcile. Let's make this right. In other words, it's like, God, I will submit to the authority of you and your word. That's humility. It's not always easy, but it's powerful. Who's in charge here? Who is it? It's you're in charge. So number one, the way of humility is we submit to the authority of his word. But here's the second thing, is that we acknowledge not just that he's the authority, but we acknowledge that his word is good to submit to. That is good to submit to. It's not humility if we're going, all right, God, I'll submit to your word. But we don't acknowledge that as good. Have you ever been in a meeting? With a, with a staff team or people that you work with, and the boss points to someone and says, hey, so-and-so, can you, can you do this for me? And the person's arms are crossed, and they're slouched in their chair, and they've got a scowl on their face, but they're like, okay. You know, like they say yes with their words, but their body language says, this is the dumbest thing you've ever asked me to do. Has, it, has anyone ever been in that meeting before? 
The person who says, okay, is not humble if their body language is, this is dumb. You, you follow me? That's not humility. Humility is acknowledging, okay, to the Lord, and I trust that your will and your word is good for me. It's good for me. And can we just be honest? How proud and arrogant do we have to be? And I've been here before for us to look at God and say, I think I know better than you and I know what's good for me. Uh, I'm better than you know what's good for me. Like how arrogant do we have to be to say, God, I know relationships better than you. My way is better. I know sexuality better than you. My way is better. I know finances better than you. My way is better. I know purpose in life better than you. My way is better. This is the God who created all those things. And so humility is coming before him and acknowledging his authority and the authority of his word. And not just acknowledging that his authority, but acknowledging that it's good. Acknowledging that it's good. If you ask the question, who's in charge here? Paul's answer, the scripture's answer is God's in charge. The culture's answer is you're in charge. The way forward is humility. God, I acknowledge your authority and the authority of your word and that it is good. Now, I want to close this morning with just four questions. To help us sort of diagnose where we are, where our hearts are on this issue. Here's the first question. It's this, have you acknowledged to the Lord that Scripture is the authority over you? Have you ever just said it to Him? Who's in charge here? You're in charge. Have you acknowledged it? God, your will, your way, your kingdom, your purpose, what you say, I will follow. Have you acknowledged to the Lord that Scripture is the authority over you? Some of us need to do that this morning. Here's the second thing. When was the last time you allowed the Bible to tell you no to something you were doing? Like if you think back and you're like, when was the last time you heard the voice of the scriptures rebuke you? And that's not a bad thing because when he rebukes us, he just invites us into life, right? So when was the last time you, you allowed the scriptures to tell you no? No, no, don't, don't go that way. What is right now in your life, what is scripture restraining you from from doing that otherwise you otherwise might do. In other words, is there something right now in your life that you're like, man, my natural impulse would be this. But because of my acknowledgement of the authority of Scripture over me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrain, I'm going to pull back, and I'm going to trust His will in His way. And, and maybe here's the last one. Is there an area of your life that you've been unwilling to submit to the authority of Scripture? Like as you sit here this morning, we think about this and we know the cultural pull towards self-sovereignty and I'm the one in charge and not God. Is there right now, like is the Holy Spirit just kind of prompting you, there's something in your life that you said, no, no, but God, you can have everything but that. Lord, I'll submit to everything but that, but not this. Is there an area of your life that you've not submitted to the authority of the Word of God? I want to encourage you, if that's the case, to lay it down. The challenge for us this week as we continue our word habit as we continue reading and, and this whole process leading up to Easter, the challenge is just a really simple one. Is that every time you open the word of God, we say, Lord, let your word speak. Word of God, speak to me. I'm going to listen. Word of God, speak to me. I will submit. Word of God, speak to me your will. Lord, word of God, speak to me your way. Word of God, speak to me your kingdom. And what your will and your way and your kingdom is, I will follow. And listen, West Pines, when that happens, like when we grab a hold of that, that he's the authority, not us, that his will is good, not ours ultimately, and there is life there. There is hope there. There is transformation there, and there is growth there. So West Pines, let's be the kind of church. Who's in charge here? You're in charge. Word of God, speak to me. I will submit to you your will in your way. Amen.
Let me pray. Father, this is our prayer. It's not always easy. It's not always easy to say, word of God, speak, I'm going to listen. Word of God, speak, I'm going to submit. Sometimes we wrestle, and God, when we wrestle, strengthen us. There's some of my brothers and sisters in this room who, who, as they're honest about it, haven't even really acknowledged yet that you and your word is the highest authority, and they're wrestling with that. So, Lord God, would you give them courage to make that choice? And to say, God, I submit, I bow the knee to you and your word for my life. And, Lord God, would you strengthen every man, woman, child in this room as we seek you more, as we grow in our habit of reading your word, as we study the word of God, would you strengthen us to be the kind of people who boldly move forward in humility, in surrender, in submission to your will, your word, and your way, and the authority of you and your word. We ask in the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus Christ and everyone together said, amen, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.